Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and raises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that this passage is now open in front of us, and with the short time we have, we pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears to see and to hear what your Spirit would say to us this morning. Help us to see Jesus and to encounter truth that will change our lives and change our church and, if you will, change the city. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some of you were looking at the clock and saying, he's just starting to preach. Well, don't worry, friends. I took all this into account, and we have a shorter sermon today, and yet shorter, but not less important. And in many ways, today's sermon feels like one of the most important in terms of conviction and passion that I've preached since coming here to be your pastor. And so may God help us to hear what his spirit wants to say to our church today. But as I said a few moments ago, we're in a series as a church talking about belonging. What does it mean to be part of a church? How do we participate in what God is doing in a spiritual community for the sake of his glory in a city like this? And so what is the church? What does it mean to be a part of the church? And today we're back in Ephesians 2. Actually, this is week three in this chapter. And by the time we're done today, I think you'll see why we're spending three weeks in Ephesians chapter 2. But here's the outline for today's sermon. As we think about what does it mean to be a church of belonging, the outline for today's sermon, what we're going to see in this passage, first, what the church is. Second, what makes the church possible. And then third, what this means for you practically. So what the church is, what makes the church possible, and what this means for each of us practically. So first, 
What is the church? Now, Ephesians 2 is one of the great places in the Bible to look at for a doctrine of the church, to get a description of God's family. But here's the main theme of this passage that I think ties all of it together. According to Ephesians 2, the church is a family of unity, but not uniformity, of oneness, but not sameness, of difference, but without division. That's what it means to be part of a church, to be a part of a community or a family that's united, but not uniform. We're one, but we're not all the same. We're deeply different, and yet there's no division. That's the vision of the church that Paul gives us here in this chapter. And in order to understand that vision, we have to actually take a look at the background of Ephesians 2. So if you have your Bible, it may be there on the screen as well. In verse 11, Paul talks about two groups of people. He talks about Gentiles, whom he calls uncircumcised, and then a little bit later, the circumcised, or those of the circumcision. And that latter reference is a reference to people who were Jewish. And so what you have right here in verse 11 is Paul is talking about two different groups of people, Jewish people and Gentile people. And now in the first century, those two groups of people were deeply different. They were religiously different. They were ethnically different. They were culturally different. We today would call them racially different, but race was not a concept that was around in the first century. But what you have in this passage are two people groups who were deeply different, but not just different. As time went on in the history of those two peoples, there wasn't just difference, there was division. These were two people groups who didn't like each other, and who oftentimes, because of that tension and hatred, experienced all-out conflict and even violence. So, for example, go down with me to verse 14 of the passage. Do you see, Paul says, He himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one. We'll come back to that. And notice it says, He destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Paul saying that previously with these two groups of people, there was a dividing wall of hostility. And he actually means that literally. Again, the Jews and the Gentiles, Paul says, you all know there's a wall between those two communities. And in the temple, the ancient center of Jewish worship, there was a place that actually separated the parts that the Jewish people could go from the place the Gentiles could go. And there was a sign right there on the wall that actually divided these two places. And that sign, historians tell us, said this. Any foreigners who go beyond this point will have only themselves to blame for their ensuing death. I mean, that's a no trespass warning if I've ever heard one. And so what the sign is saying is meant to be an illustration of what was not just a literal but a figurative reality. These two people groups were different and divided. There was division in their community. And now we get to Ephesians 2 and what's happening. <laughs> Paul's talking about the gospel. That's what the first part of Ephesians 2 is about. Do you remember a few weeks ago? We were talking about the gospel and we said, what is it? It's that we were dead in our sin. We were hopeless in relationship to God. But God in an act of love and mercy reached down and gave us Jesus Christ to deliver us from our sin through his death on the cross. 
And you, the Paul says, who were dead have been made alive with Jesus. By grace you have been saved. And so we hear that, that's the gospel, and we say, amen, praise God. And then Paul says, now let's see what that looks like in practice. So you have these two people groups in Ephesus, the Jews and the Gentiles, and they don't like each other, they don't get along, but they both believe the gospel. They both become Christians. So on Sunday morning, they make their way to church, and they get to church, and they go inside, and they see the other people there. And they say, wait a second, hold on. I want to worship Jesus, but not with those people. I mean, we don't get along. We never intermingle. We are divided. There's a wall of hostility between us. And Paul says, not anymore. Jesus came to break down that wall and to create in himself, look at verse 15 and 16, one new humanity. That's what the gospel does. It creates a community out of people who were deeply different. Do you hear what Paul's saying? In the first part of the chapter, he lays out the gospel. And he says, in effect, the gospel is how you get a reconciled or a right relationship with God. But then he says that very same gospel reconciles you to other people. And so you can't care about the gospel without caring about the community that the gospel creates. To care about the gospel is to care about a church of people who are deeply different and yet who come together as one new humanity. Now, at this point, some will hear that and say, wait, one new humanity. That sounds like we all become sort of a assimilated, like a, like a mix, like we all become one thing. Is that what Paul's saying? Well, kind of, but you got to hear this. Paul isn't saying that when you join the church and when you become a Christian, we lose our difference. We're still very different. Being a Christian does not mean you lose your blackness or your Asianness or your whiteness or whatever ethnic background you come from. You might become a Christian and hold on to different political views or have different understandings about the way society ought to function. Those differences remain. But what Jesus destroys in the church as he creates one new humanity is not difference, but division. That's what gets destroyed. And so we become one family, one community of people who are deeply different and yet united because of what Jesus has done. So do you hear what Paul's saying? Because of the death of Jesus on the cross, something has been destroyed which was keeping people apart. Rich Velotis, who's a pastor, puts it this way. The cross is not just a bridge to get us to God. It's also a sledgehammer that breaks down the hostile walls that separate us. The cross is a sledgehammer that destroys the division that exists through people. And how does it do that? Well, the answer is in the passage we just read. Do you see where Paul talks about law? He makes an allusion to the law. And what's that? Well, it's a reference to the moral code that was found in the Old Testament. And that moral code was one of the things that made Jewish people different from all other peoples in the world. But here's what happened, and this always happens in our hearts. We take things that are different from others, and we turn them into ways of making ourselves feel superior. 
and thereby look down on others as inferior. And so what happened in olden times is a person would say, I follow God's law and I keep the commands and I obey the regulations and therefore I'm better than those who don't. And so there was a source of difference, but it became a source of division. It separated people from each other. And Paul says that when Jesus died on the cross, he set aside the law. That is to say he fulfilled it. He obliterated its power to keep people separated from each other. Because what happened when Jesus died on the cross? Jesus was saying to all of us, the only way you can have a right relationship with God is through the finished work of Jesus. In other words, grace. The only way to have a right relationship with God is through grace. And that means that I no longer, if I understand that the only way I can relate to God is through grace, it means that I can no longer look down on anyone else as inferior. Because if I understand that the only hope for my life is the grace and mercy of God, then how could I actually, in believing that, look down on someone else as inferior and less than? You see, the cross, the death of Jesus, if you would, levels the playing field. So that in the throne of heaven, when you stand before God, there's a one truth that unites every person. Regardless of skin color, regardless of political ideology, regardless of accent or where you're from. The truth that unites us all is we are great sinners and Jesus is a great savior. And when you have that in common, Paul says, sure you might have differences with other people, but they're not division anymore. We can be one, even though we're not the same. We can have unity, even though we're not uniform. We can celebrate difference and not allow it to become sources of division. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross is what makes possible this new humanity. So what does this mean for you? This is the practical bit. We're almost done. But what does this mean for you? Three things, and then we'll be done. First, it means... God is calling us to get proximate, to get close to people in the church, especially those who you might look at as being very different than yourself. There's a great case study of this in the book of Acts chapter 10. I'm going to just quickly give you a summary. There's a man named Peter, he's Jewish, and there's a man named Cornelius, and he's a Gentile. And God goes through great lengths to get these two guys to have lunch. And when they have lunch, they realize that they're brothers. Jew and Gentile coming together over a meal. And there's this great part of the story in the beginning where Cornelius is described as a God seeker. He's wanting to know more about God. Now, Peter's an apostle. Peter knows a ton about God, but they live in different places. So God sends an angel to tell Cornelius, hey, send some people to go to Peter and ask Peter to come to your house for a meal. And when I read that story, here's the question I always ask. Cornelius wants to know about the gospel. An angel shows up and says, go and ask Peter. Why doesn't the angel just tell Cornelius the gospel? I mean, the angel knows the gospel. He knows it better than Peter does. And yet the angel says, if you really want to understand the gospel, you've got to hang out with Peter. Why? Because until he hangs out with Peter, he doesn't really get the gospel. That it reconciles people who are different. And so, what does this mean for us practically? you got to get close. 
You got to get proximate. We have to be in community and having friendships with people who are different than us. That's what it means to be in the church. Second thing, practice. Not just proximity or closeness, but you've got to put these beliefs into practice. Same story, Acts chapter 10. There's a part where Peter says, as he's having a meal with Cornelius and the Spirit of God falls down and Cornelius and his family become Christians, Peter says, I now realize that God shows no favoritism. Now, that's interesting because throughout the Old Testament that Peter would have known really well, the Bible says God shows no favoritism. And yet in that moment, Peter says, I now realize what's happening. This doctrine that I knew intellectually, I've now experienced personally. What I knew in my head has now become a reality in my heart in which I've experienced that God shows no favoritism. And that's what being in close relationship with others does. It takes truth that we know abstractly and it gives it flesh. And it allows us to put our beliefs into practice. And so the question for all of us this morning, are there things that I believe about God that I just believe in my head? That I need the community of faith to help me sink it down into my heart? Proximity, practice, and last, who sits at the table with you? Literally, who comes to your table? Is there ever anyone at your table for coffee or for tea or for a meal that is deeply different and yet absolutely united because they're your family? And so that might be a literal table where you actually sit and have a meal together, but it also just might be ways that you find connection and friendship in the church with people that you might not otherwise have that much to do with. But we come together because of Jesus Christ. Jesus has invited us to his table, literally saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's what communion is about. Close intimacy with Jesus. And if God and Jesus has done that, if he's given us a seat at his table, then we can become a community that has an open table for others, even those who are different. Last thing, then we're done. Emmanuel Katongole is a professor. And in one of his great books, he describes Christian community. And he says it this way. Let me just read this, and then we're going to pray. But he says, reflecting on this unity amidst diversity in the Christian church, Katongole says this. We are called to be strange in the same way that the early Christian communities were strange to the world around them. The community in Antioch brought together Jews and Samaritans, Greeks and Romans, slaves and free, men and women, in a way that was so confusing that people around them did not know what to call them. So they called them Christians. The only way that they knew how to describe their peculiar actions was to say that they were followers of an odd preacher from Galilee. And the world, and London, that's my bit, London, is longing for such new and odd communities in our time. Let's pray. God, thank you for meeting us in your word. Now as we respond in prayer and in praise, transform us. Transform us to be a community of unity and oneness and difference. For the sake of your glory, for the good of this city, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.